Good morning. Good cold, cold morning here uh, on the Nachum Siegel Network. You are listening to R.E. Lightstone on Tech Talk. Um, very excited to be with you today. Uh, it feels like it's the first real Monday uh, in quite a while. Maybe like things are going to be regular and, and, you know, Baruch Hashem, New York City traffic was that this morning, two and a half hours on the way in. Uh, we can't decide whether it's snowing here, it's raining here, it's supposed to be frigid this evening. Uh, it's cold, lots of other places where you're probably out there listening to us. I hope some of you are warm uh, and that everybody stays uh, stays safe and has an outstanding week. Um, this is a big week uh, here at Tech Talk. We have uh, a very exciting guest that we've got on, and there's a fair amount to recap. Um, we don't have the same end-of-year uh, closing that I think the real estate markets have and, and certainly the the stock and commodity uh, markets have in terms of uh, uh, need to close things by by year end. But there is a couple interesting things that I'd like to point out to our audience. I'm, I'm working on getting a couple of apps into the App Store, and it's funny because uh, whereas numerous different industries, if you will, are trying to cram things in the last couple of days before uh, before January 1 or the, the end of 2013, um, the Apple App Store, for example, basically acknowledges that they're not going to be taking in anything new about three or four days uh, around the 20th or so of December, and, and they'll start getting back to you right about now, January 6th, which is interesting for an industry that has the reputation of, of not sleeping, not stopping, uh, rarely even pausing. Um, at least the Apple App Store certainly, I think, takes a little bit of time, and I think that's a nice thing. It's a little bit refreshing uh, to be able to see that as, as, uh, as an entrepreneur who's, who's been working on a couple apps in a couple different, uh, different areas. It's, it's nice to almost have taken a week, 10 days to, to recalibrate, and uh, uh, it's exciting. So uh, you're listening to R.E. Lightstone on the Nachum Siegel Network. Um, you can hear us at jmandtheam.org or nachumsegel.com. As always, we are proud to be sponsored by our dear friends at Adorama Camera, much more than a camera store. Please see them online at adorama.com or visit them in person at 42 West 18th Street. Uh, so we're excited to have you again this morning and this week here on Tech Talk. The guest that we're going to have on today uh, is a really interesting fellow, and, and we hope to have him on for, uh, for as much of the hour as he'll give us in terms of time. And uh, I'm excited to introduce a little bit about who he is and, uh, and what he does. And we're especially blessed that, uh, that Ben is calling us from Eretz Israel, from Israel. I'm guessing from Jerusalem. We'll find out in a minute. Uh, ben is a entrepreneur-friendly venture enthusiast who co-founded his very first startup all the way back in 99, uh, being a business development executive with numerous different private equity ventures and startup companies. He also served as the Vice President of International Business Development at IDT Corp. Many of us are familiar with IDT, where he managed acquisition projects and established and managed a number of new corporate subsidiaries, as well as startup ventures. Uh, he started as an attorney. We're not going to hold that against him. And uh, while he was doing that, he also clerked on Israel's Supreme Court for Judge Yitzhak Zamir. He studied and earned his B.A. in economics from Yeshiva University and a J.D. with honors from Columbia Law School. Um, to me, I feel a special kinship not growing up in what we'll call the exact part of the tri-state area with Ben. Ben hails from Allentown, Pennsylvania, and now has the privilege of living in Jerusalem. Ben, are you on the line? Uh, yes, I am. Can you hear me? I uh, can hear you perfectly. How are you? Good morning, Ben. Good. Thank God. I'm doing great. I really appreciate you taking the time, your afternoon, our uh, our morning, uh, to share with us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and and uh, sort of what the startup world looks like today. So uh, so thank you. You know, just just you know, we wound up with a significant snowstorm here in New York, really all up and down the East Coast on Friday. And, uh, and as we're struggling to find like our shovels and everything else, our next door neighbors had moved in. They only had brooms. And we felt like calling to see if anybody from Israel had been driven by the last snowstorm, like to invent something that automatically melts all of the snow away. So are you, are you aware of anything like that? Unfortunately not. We could have used that a few weeks ago when we had our, uh, snowmageddon, as we called it, uh, here in Jerusalem. And, and what were, what was people's reaction? Just to, we have the chance to have you on the air, and this certainly isn't you, you know the I don't think it's your area of expertise. Although from Allentown, I think that you guys did have a fair amount of snow. When you saw people who hadn't seen snow before, what, what was their reaction? <laughs> it was it was it was amazing. I mean, other than the fact, look, there was a part of it that was very scary. You know, we had rel- uh, neighbors and elderly people that we knew about who were out of power and were huddled, huddled under blankets for Shabbat, and it was just very 
it happened really, it, it hit Thursday night and Friday going into Shabbat. So you had people really without, you know, without technically the ability to do anything and halakhically without the ability to do anything. Right. Um, it was a really, really terrible combination, but thank God, uh, most of the people that we knew got through it okay. We had to, we had to move out of our house for for the weekend. Really, we had we had completely no power. Um, and you know, you're sort of growing up in Pennsylvania. You're used to the gentle jingle jangling of the plows working through the night and spreading the salt. Uh, we had none of that in Jerusalem, and there was just no ability to prepare uh, for anything like this. Uh, I mean, it's unprecedented. I think in the last thirty years or twenty years, something like that. Uh, so there was just no no ability. There, I'm sure there was a high desire by the municipality to help out, but there was just no ability to deal with the power being down and the you know the the quality of the streets. It was it was days until things got back to normal. That that that's crazy. I'll tell you, uh, you know, uh, with De Blasio now as the as the new mayor in New York City, so they're touting this sort of as his first crisis. And I think he came through with flying colors. I don't think it hurt that the rain has more or less melted away the snow and fairly rapid fashion over here. But uh, but uh, one of the things that they instituted here on the uh, snow removal trucks is GPS, so you can track where the closest snow removal truck is. And, and I think this happened from a snowstorm not that many years ago where they had a lot of trucks that they, they weren't working through the night and wherever else it would be. But anyways, this this is most certainly not what the audience, I think, wanted to hear from <laughs> from Ben Wiener. And certainly I, I've got a lot to, to, to pick your brain about. So um, thank you. Thank you for coming on. We're very excited to have you here. Um, Pleasure. So, so tell me how you got your start. What did what did you what did you uh, co-found in 1999? How did you get into being an entrepreneur with you know your uh, history in economics and, and law? Well, I, I come from a line on both sides of my family of, uh, of business people. I had a feeling going into law that it was going to be my springboard into business. Um, my first taste of it was when after I graduated Columbia. We came to Yerushalayim, and I clerked on the Supreme Court. And during that year, I also did business development for my law firm back in New York that I had not really worked for, but had already committed to going to. And they were interested in developing uh, 1996, 97. They were interested in developing their Israeli clientele, corporate clientele, companies that were going public or doing M&A. Um, and so I split my time. I took off like a day a week with the judge's blessing and ran around the country to do business development as a kid, really, for this for this law firm in the States. And I think I enjoyed that day even more than I enjoyed the days that I was doing law. That day a week when I was running around the country and pitching our law firm to other companies and trying to find the companies that were relevant, understanding the market, that initial taste of business development was, was very exciting to me and um, I think inspired me to think about at least going into that one day as a profession. So um, as you noted, I, I made Aliyah in 1998 uh, and left law about a year later. Um, uh, the, the short story is just bumped into somebody who had a very interesting idea. Uh, our kids were in Ghan together, so we had them over for a Shabbat lunch, and he told me about the idea. One thing led to another, and I ended up raising a bunch of money from private investors for the company, joining the company as vice president of business development. And that was my first startup. Um, it was many, many years later before I started a startup with my own idea. For most of my career in startups, I've typically been working with teams of technologists or people who had ideas. And I was, you know, the business head or, or the, the biz dev person who was figuring out how to take that for technology and get it into the market, get it in front of investors, raise money for it, do whatever deals needed to be done around that technology. More recently, I've started my own startup companies where I've had more of a hand in the actual product itself and creating the product. Um, that's been a, a new stage for me. I, w- I want to hear about that also. Will you walk through for those of us in the audience, and myself included, who who I think their first major introduction to Israeli startups was the book Startup Nation. At what point in time in 96, 97 was that a, were, were startups coming out in New York? Was that an advanced thought for the, your corporate, uh, law firm back here in New York? And I do want to remind our audience that, uh, we're trying something a little bit new today. You can see a live streaming video, uh, of me with a face born for radio, um, at nachumsegel.com. You're listening to Nachum Siegel. 
uh, on the Nachum Siegel Network here with Arye Lightstone and a very special guest with us today calling live from Jerusalem, Ben Wiener. So I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but, uh, you know, historically the, the mid to late 90s, was that a, was that a happening time in Israel? Definitely. Yeah, there was already a market for initial public offerings of Israeli companies. It was, it was a lot smaller than it is now, uh, and a lot fewer successes. I mean, obviously with the passage of time, the industry has developed dramatically here in Israel. But even then in 1996, uh, you had companies raising, Israeli companies raising serious venture capital money, going public, uh, already some getting acquired. And, uh, there were already law firms, U.S. law firms, uh, on the ground in Israel, maybe not officially, certainly not with offices, but with representatives uh, flying back and forth, usually from New York, on a steady trip, you know, once a month, once every two months, to meet with you know potential clients. So we were we were definitely competing in a very very competitive space, and there were some well-known firms that were extremely entrenched in the industry here that we were trying to you know wrest business from. So. It wasn't easy, and that, that that challenge was was what excited me. I loved, you know, being forced to distinguish what we did in a really commoditized market where there already were some much older, you know, in age and, and much larger uh, players than me. So what, what for ad- me, that just what advantage? Sorry, what what advantages did you bring to the table? Was the was the the Jewish thing helpful? Was the the bilingual piece? Um, advantageous in order to, to boost your standing, if you will, in the Israeli startup world? Um, myself personally or when I was representing my law firm? When you were representing your law firm. Uh, I, I really wasn't selling my own services. I mean, again, I was a kid. I was in my mid-20s. So I was basically saying our law firm somehow is better and cheaper or more efficient than all these other law firms in New York. I mean, go try to distinguish between law firms in New York City that's a real challenge. I mean, they're all pretty much the same. So I had to be very creative and find, really by interviewing or by questioning the partners at the firm, you know, what do you guys think is our real value at how can we compete, and then translating that uh, to the potential clients. I mean, I have to dig back and rehash the pitch from, you know, 18 years ago or whatever. You know, I, I can't really recite it to you right now, but I had a pretty solid pitch as to why, I felt the clients or potential clients should use us instead of, you know, the wild gotchals and the Skadden Arps and, and the bigger firms that were, you know, quite, quite entrenched in the industry. Right. And, and you're sitting there then in Israel uh, clerking for the, for the, uh, a member of the Supreme Court. I mean, that just sounds like a fascinating experience on its own. We could probably do a, do a show in terms of that. Did that give you additional street credibility in terms of the Israeli entrepreneurs having been entrenched at least a little bit in their legal system? Uh, to be honest, uh, probably next to nothing. I mean, okay. it was really just, <laughs> it was a fascinating personal experience. Mm-hmm. Um, had nothing to do with my, my business career. I mean, maybe somebody notices it on my resume and figures, okay, maybe that guy's a smart guy because he clerked on the Supreme Court. But, um, I'm not sure how, how many people even notice it. Okay. My main, my main job for the judge was to do what's called comparative legal research. So I was researching whenever they got a new case that didn't have a lot of law. In Israel on it, I would be the one who had to carry the laboring or in researching mostly American law and some other jurisdictions that were more developed and come back to the judge with a memo about what other jurisdictions said about it. He wasn't bound to, you know, look at what they said or accept what they said, but he certainly was going to be influenced by what other courts said on that issue. The, the biggest case that I had the whole year was, a, was actually a very, very influential case in Israeli history, which was the first sexual harassment case in in Israel ever, really? there was no there was no law, there was no case law, there was nothing. And the judge in Israel, which is hard for people to comprehend in America, the, the judge really could flip a coin or just write the law. He he told me this is my opportunity to write the law of sexual harassment in Israel. And what was fascinating was, and Columbia Law School wrote wrote this up in an article a couple of years ago about my experience. What was fascinating was as a from, you know, orthodox, you know, conservative politically clerk for a very secular, very liberal, I mean, a lovely guy, but very secular, very liberal judge, he turned to me and said, you know, I'm, uh, you know, to, to paraphrase, I'm going to be Makil. You know, I'm going to, I'm probably going to let the guy off. Right. And, and looking at the facts, I was a little bothered, I guess, 
just from my American upbringing and certainly my Columbia education, it seemed to me, not having researched the case, that uh, it could go the other way. So I said, why don't you just give me give me a, a little bit to go into the library. I came back a month and a half later with a memo that said, according to the American law, by my analysis, I think the guy, you know, uh, violated the sexual harassment standard in America, at least. Right. And And the judge took my memo and adopted the American standard with some tweaks for the Israeli legal system and found the guy guilty, which was pretty interesting considering what happened in this country later on in terms of very senior members of our political establishment getting uh, found guilty for all sorts of sexual crimes and, and harassment. That law became, that case became the, you know, the, the zero point in the Israeli legal system for sexual harassment and sort of set the standard going forward. Right, that was um, the precedent. That was the precedent, and the <laughs> Knesset ended up taking that case and turning it into uh, turning it into law. So, again, having nothing to do with my professional career, but that was a very, very interesting personal, you know, experience. Sure. Um, but uh, like I said, in 1999, I left it all behind and, and went into my first startup. I, I continue to lean upon my legal training. I don't think it was, it certainly wasn't a waste of time, but the vast majority of my experience has been in the trenches with uh, large and small companies actually doing deals you know, out in the field. But to, to me, it is interesting. I'm just going to point back to that. I, I, that was also startup. It's a startup legal system, and and you had an opportunity to uh, you know really shape uh, you know what uh, is a is a standard bearing law. I think in the country that that's a that's a pretty incredible opportunity, and and it's also the, from the startup concept and and finding the right notion of which uh, makes sense. I, I think that's very interesting. Can you share with us what the what the first company is that you decided to go into? Uh, it's really ancient history. I think it was more of a lesson, to be honest, in what not to do Got it. than what to do. Uh, the, the technology itself was fascinating. Um, the, there were other issues uh, that caused that company to close within about a year. Mm-hmm. Um, the founder who I hooked up with, uh, I don't think, I'm sure he's not listening, but uh, I don't think he was ready for a prime time. And I don't think, and I, I think I was a little bit too young and eager to, to know the difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, to- I told my wife that I felt that that year was my MBA. That was the year when I learned everything I know about what not to do <laughs> in a startup. Right. Um, but I did gain some valuable experience, and I was not deterred, and I did it again the next year. Uh, I joined up with a, a, bit, a larger group of technologists. I did my homework a lot more carefully, uh, teamed up with a fantastic team, fantastic people, really the polar opposite of, of my first experience. We raised over $2 million, did a Bird Foundation grant, did a lot of things right. Uh, and, and then I learned that even when you do a lot of things right and you have great people, even then the company can cannot work out. Uh, it lasted a lot longer. Uh, and in that case, our company went under about two and a half or three years after we started it uh, because our venture capitalist went under. Our, the VC fund that was funding us suddenly closed. Um, so we, we learned a lot about, I learned a lot about primary risk and secondary risk and tertiary risk. Um, and all of those risks can, can cause a startup to decline or fail. So when you get into the startup business, you have to understand that there's a lot of reasons why great ideas and even great companies and great teams can, you know, ultimately fail to succeed. Um, and those lessons, uh, you know, are lessons that stay with me to this day and in my current activity are front and center in, in what I do. So you alluded to our audience before, Ben, and just like to remind everybody out there that they're listening to Tech Talk on the Nachum Siegel Network. Uh, you're listening with Arya Lightstone, and we have on with us a guest today, Ben Wiener, calling live from Jerusalem. You can hear us at jmintheam.org or nachumsiegel.com. And we are sponsored, as always, by our friends at Adorama Camera, much more than a camera store. Check them out online at adorama.com. Uh, or visit them in person at 42 West 18th Street. Um, can you, you, as far as our audience goes, and I, I certainly haven't spoken to all of them, but the, the, the feedback that I get, and please feel free to tweet me at, at Lightstone A or email me at a Lightstone Gmail, and I know I've got a Nachum Siegel uh, email address, and I'll say that out in a little bit. Um, 
But the audience that has been responsive, and we've had a fair amount of audience be responsive, really has been broken into sort of two groups. One is people sort of deciding, are they interested in trying out a new field? Are they willing to try to be an entrepreneur? And the second is people who uh, have been gone to for advice. So parents or uncles or aunts or other business people who, who their nieces, nephews, kids have come to them and said, we want to start something. And uh, they're really tuning in here in order to hear some of the lessons, the pros and the cons for trying what what for the more buttoned-down New York City uh, work environment certainly is not what we would call a typical job for a good Jewish boy. Um, can you share with us sort of uh, in your words um, some, of the, some of the challenges or some of the pitfalls that, that people could or should be aware of in terms of venturing into this for the first time? Um, <laughs> that's, a, that's a hard question to answer briefly, but um, I, I think you have to... Do as much as you can. Um, you know what? I, it's uh, it's like you have to be a little bit of a um, of a hypocrite or or a, a um, I, I don't even want to say like a, a scary word. You have to be almost schizophrenic. You have to, on one hand, understand fully the risks that you're getting into, and almost equally, you have to have a dose of absolute like insanity about the thing that you're pursuing. And it's, it's hard to get the right balance between those two. Um, but I think the great entrepreneurs are the ones who, uh, you know, run full speed ahead to the goal that they're pursuing, you know, against the odds. And at the same time, somehow are cognizant and realistic about what they're going through. I know that that may not make a lot of sense, but that, that's actually what you have to balance so to me, it sounds like a great job for a Jewish boy, meaning that's, you know, sort, sort of what we are as a people against all odds. Um, right. and, uh, and with, uh, with, uh, significant conviction. But can, I heard this and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you're allowed to fail as an entrepreneur, right? The first one is not necessarily going to be your success. Yeah. And I think now that I've become an investor, I think that, um, and this may not be popular among, certain crowds of investors or whatever, but I think personally I can say this strongly. I like to hear when an entrepreneur comes in to pitch me that they have failed in something before. A lot of entrepreneurs are scared about disclosing failures to investors because it sounds like you know, they're, they're losers or, or maybe it was their fault. I like to hear that an entrepreneur had some sort of failure uh, because I maintain that entrepreneurs, myself included, learn much more from the failures than the successes. You can succeed for a whole variety of reasons, and sometimes the success uh, glosses over mistakes that you made or things that you didn't do right. You know, something else carried the business or something else brought it to success. When you fail, it's pretty easy to figure out why you failed, and usually it's not you. Usually it's something, like I said, it's a, it's a, it's a secondary risk or a tertiary risk or some other thing that happened, and you learn much more from the success, from the failures, I think, than successes. So that's interesting. Um, so as an investor, you look and, – and when somebody comes and says, I failed in this, do you wait for them to come and say for the following reasons or you're comfortable with uh, – how far do you drill into that? Uh, you know. no, of course, of course <laughs> you want to know what the reasons are. I mean, if right. they say, I failed because I was busted for a drug conviction and I was thrown into jail for six months, that's probably an entrepreneur. I, I appreciate their candor. Right. I'm probably going to stay away from them. Um, no, but I'm all joking aside, I mean it, – it, you want them to be able to articulate what they learned from the failures, but those failures, A, they build character, and B, they build very valuable experience and wisdom about what can happen and all the various things that can happen down the line in the business. So, uh, you know, again, there are some investors that may stay away from people who failed in the past, but uh, I think that failure, as long as it's understood and, and as long as the lessons are gleaned from it, can actually be a great way to learn. In fact, if you, if you just – I'll just give you a quick – Give your listeners a quick exercise. Go into Google and type in mistakes and entrepreneurs, just those two words, and you'll find pages and pages and pages of articles by all sorts of business gurus telling entrepreneurs not to make the following five mistakes or the following ten mistakes. These are all the mistakes that you should not make. I'm, gonna, I'm writing an article that I hope to publish soon called The Five Mistakes That Entrepreneurs Must Make. These are mistakes that you should make. I want you to make these mistakes. Uh, I don't want you to make it necessarily after I've invested, 
But <laughs> these are mistakes that you have to go through to learn how to be a great entrepreneur. If you haven't made these mistakes, if you haven't tasted the sting of what happens when you make these mistakes, you're liable to make them in the future when much more is at stake. So make these mistakes early, get them out of your system, and, and learn from them. And uh, it'll make you a stronger, better leader later on. That's that's sort of my attitude. And learn from them. You you mentioned that uh, that that first uh, startup was really earning your MBA. You you learn a lot from that experience. So while it took up time, and I'm sure a tremendous amount of uh, uh, stress and whatever else goes with that, um, it, uh, you walked away as a valuable learning experience. Yes. So can, uh, can you explain from the converse side? that somebody who historically has succeeded in startups, is that indicative of future success, or, or you would maybe argue that that's not 100% true? It's definitely not 100% true. Uh, there's a great article that that I cite as, like, Torah Misinai. Uh, I mean, it's in our business, to me, this is like, you know, Moshe getting the Torah from, from Har Sinai. Right. There's, a, there's an article that Mark Andreessen, who's one of the greatest VCs in the world, wrote in 2007, which raised a lot of eyebrows and still raises a lot of controversy, where he writes that the most important thing is the market, not the people, not even the product, but the market that the people are tackling. Um, if you get the market right and you devise a product that's you know, good enough or certainly great for the market, that's going to win. But you could have the greatest people in the world, even a great technology, but if the market isn't ready for it, if the market doesn't want it, it's guaranteed to fail. And he talks about in 2007 that he was, you know, at the time he didn't mention him, but he mentioned some great entrepreneur who had been very successful multiple times, had sold a bunch of companies who had just raised $80 million. And he says, I guarantee this guy is going to fail because he's gotten cocky and he believes that every time he touches something, it turns to gold. And he, I know the company, he, he didn't mention it, but he says, I know the company and I know that there's no market fit and all these investors are going to lose their $80 million. Right. So, it's definitely not a guarantee. And sometimes, like I said, success can uh, lull you into complacency. And the last thing you can be as an entrepreneur is complacent. You have to be you know, up all night worrying about your, your company. You know, people, there are two great lines that I've heard. One of them is, you know, you don't understand your business if there aren't five things that, you know, that keep you up at night about your business. People have had a lot of successes don't often stay up all night worrying. But, you know, the, the hungry entrepreneur is going to stay up all night worrying. The other line is an entrepreneur once said, um, ever since I started my startup company, I sleep like a baby. The person said, what are you talking about? He said, well, I wake up every two hours and I cry. <laughs> That's a great so, line. It's a great line. And I, and I think, you know, sometimes people who have succeeded a few times, you know, sometimes they stay hungry for the rest of their lives because it's a game and, and they know how to play it. But sometimes you run the risk of uh, slipping or, or just not being sharp and, um, Definitely not a guarantee of future success. Right. Well, one thing that I think is really interesting in, in the world of startups, and, and you can speak to this much more intelligently than I can, that you have so many different life cycles, as opposed to if you're in, in, in a longer play game, be it real estate or law or whatever else it would be, that there's a career trajectory, and, and eventually you sort of hit that plateau, and you can live on that plateau for a little while. It doesn't seem that that exists all that much in the startup world. No, it definitely... definitely uh... You know, I mean, I have friends who started a startup in 2004, 2005 uh, that just raised their first round of funding last year. I think that's an outlier. That's very unusual. Um, most times you're going to know pretty quickly if you're onto something or not, especially in the space where I play, which is digital media, software, things that move relatively quickly. Um, it's true. You really have to understand that you're strapping yourself into a roller coaster and you have to be ready for the twists and turns. Um, that said, you know, the, the economic crisis of 2008 and some of the other crashes and burns before and after have told us that even when you lock yourself into a, a big company um, and, and think that you've strapped yourself into something that's going to be a very slow, gradual rise into retirement, or unfortunately for many people, ended up leaving them with nothing. I mean, if you think about all the people that worked at, Kodak, for example, for their whole lives and, and thought, you know, I'm in a safer place. I didn't go to, you know, these upstart technology companies. I'm, I'm in something that's, you know, going to provide me with stability for the rest of my life. And suddenly, you know, you look around and Kodak's no longer. So we live in a world where things change really quickly and even big companies uh, can change 
for the better or for the worse, uh, really quickly. And, um, you know, there's no, no guarantee in any sector. That's for sure. It just sure. happens to be that startups, uh, have a much shorter cycle usually, um, than, uh, than the big companies. It's true. Well, look, and we, we have that, uh, here all the time. You know, a lot, a lot of the attorneys that have graduated in the last year or two are, uh, if they haven't found a position already, you know, are, are certainly questioning the the legal profession as a career choice. And I know a lot of the doctors out there with uh, with uh, the Affordable Care Act, etc. Things are certainly more up in the air in these positions that used to be considered much more stable and and what we would call ultimately a career. I want to remind everybody out there that they are listening to Tech Talk with Arya Lightstone here on the Nachum Siegel Network. You can see us. Live at NachumSiegel.com. Listen to us, jmandtheam.org or NachumSiegel.com. And we are proud to be sponsored by our friends at Adorama Camera, more than just a camera store. Check them out online at Adorama.com or visit them in person at 42 West 18th Street. We're very excited to be uh, in touch and listening to Ben Wiener this morning from Jerusalem. Uh, a myriad of startup companies, uh, successful uh, uh, beginning law career uh, clerk for Supreme Court Justice on the Israeli Supreme Court, uh, we just heard recently, uh, played a role in the establishment of the precedent of the sexual harassment uh, laws in Israel, and, and all incredibly exciting. So how did you go from that to your VP of International Business Development at IDT? Um, that was an easy transition. Uh, my, my second startup company, as I said, shut down almost suddenly when our VC shut down and pulled the funding that we were getting from them. Um, at the time, I had known IDT for a long time, like most Jewish people, you know, growing up in New York or, or graduating YU in the 90s. I think half my class from YU worked at IDT at that point. Um, so I certainly knew the company pretty well. Um, over here in Israel, they were just starting to build out what became the call center business here in Yerushalayim. And two friends of mine uh, were hired as the co-CEOs of the new unit, and I believe I was the first person that they hired um, after they were named co-CEOs. And I was hired as uh, VP of International Business Development to basically grow out the platform beyond the business that IDT could provide it. So IDT was going to give the call center a certain number of seats uh, and jobs, but Clearly, the chairman, Howard Jonas, wanted to grow the, that division to, to massive numbers, to thousands of employees. And to get to those numbers, we would have to use call center as a platform and, and develop other clients and other sources of business. So I was hired in January of three, I believe, to start generating business for the call center. And very quickly, Howard came over on a trip and met with us and decided that he wanted somebody to do uh, mergers and acquisitions to actually acquire other call, call center companies and use acquisitions as a means to further grow the business rapidly. And they tapped me as the person to uh, to do those deals. So for a couple of years at IDT, I was basically uh, officing out of the call center and watching it grow, but I was working directly for the corporate headquarters in New Jersey, flying back and forth and doing deals um, for the company, mostly acquisition side deals where I was looking to acquire companies or develop new businesses and mostly businesses that Howard himself was interested in developing or starting or acquiring. Right, and that, that seems like a, well, it might be a natural fit from a skills basis going from, you know, a fairly small, uh, you know, scrappy startups or series of startups uh, going into this, this uh, you know, gorilla of uh, IDT with direct access to the chairman must have been a, a, a interesting pivot in terms of uh, your mentality at work. Yeah, it was fascinating, and, and I think that that um, having you know being on both sides of the table uh, really made me able to have empathy for the people sitting on the other side for me. So from from then on. Um, you know, as I was sitting across from small business owners trying to acquire their businesses, I knew exactly what, what was going through their heads because I had been on their side of the table just a few months before. I had been the small business hoping that some big company would knock on the door and want to talk to us. Right. Um, so, and then as a, as a small company or, or working with small startup companies even now 
who are dreaming of, you know, getting in front of Motorola's or IBM's or, or IDT's, I have a little bit more insight into what goes on in big companies and what kind of what kind of pitch, what kind of entry they have to have, what kind of interest they have to spark, what kind of language they need to speak. I don't mean in terms of the actual language, but what kind of terms and, and phrases and, and ideas they need to float uh, in order for the big company to to get interested. Sure. So, so there was definitely a valuable, a tremendously valuable experience that added to my skill set. I think. Right. And you and you were at IDT for how long? Uh, I think I was there for three three plus years. If I'm not mistaken, I left towards the end of '06. Uh, um, it was sort of a gradual transition out of IDT. I had decided to go out on my own. I did. I continued to do a little bit of work for IDT as I transitioned out, and um, I felt that uh, it was my time to go out on my own and start to do deals on my own as a type of merchant bank or consultant, uh, putting different types of transactions together, similar to what I was working on at IDT, but uh, in a different context. So that's so that's interesting. Will you explain sort of what that means? You're working. You you started the startup. You went to the IDT, and then you said, "Hey, I can do this." What's the this? Well, I mean, to be specific, uh, IDT Howard had me looking at certain industries, and he would say, "I want to acquire a whole bunch of companies in that industry." In legal or technical terms, that's called a roll-up. Mm-hmm. And I had worked on some roll-ups as a lawyer. I was fascinated by roll-ups as a young lawyer. At the, at the synergies and at the economies of scale that are created when you, at least in, in, in potentially or in theory, can be created when you join, you know, 10 companies together and you have a company that's worth, you know, what, what 15 companies would have been worth or what 20 companies would have been worth. So just by joining them together, you squeeze all these synergies out of them. And um, that's sort of what I was working on at IDT. And... That's really what I intended to do when I left IDT, although, again, it's not worth a lot of the airtime because that ended up not being what I did. Right. Um, I, left, I left IDT to do that, but to make a very long story short, I found myself in Turkey um, developing some connections there really on my first client. I had, a, I had one client when I left IDT, which was a telecom company based in Istanbul, and they had hired me to take them public in London on one of the exchanges in London. And in the course of going back and forth and working with them in Istanbul, I met a number of other players in the industry, found out more about what was going on in the Turkish market, happened sort of fortuitously to meet a number of investors, you know, investors, I mean, multi-billion dollar funds in London and New York that were interested in getting into Turkey and some of the emerging markets. And pretty soon I was able to put together a puzzle piece or a puzzle or a package where I was introducing these investors to deals in Turkey, having nothing to do with the telecom company that I was working with. And that led me to some very, very serious intensive activity on the ground in Turkey mainly and some other emerging market company, uh, countries where I could get in and out of those countries a lot easier and quicker from Israel than some of my partners could from New York. And um, we, we pursued some very interesting transactions until 2008. We were just about hitting critical mass in 2008 when the market crashed, uh, and that's why I didn't want to take up a lot of airtime explaining sure. it. It happened to be extremely fascinating stuff, and I thought that I had sort of built something that I could retire on within a couple of years. But the market crash wiped everything out, um, wiped one of my funds. One of the funds I was working with was a $5 billion fund. That fund was wiped out um, so there was tremendous, there were tremendous casualties uh, in, in the space where I was, and that brought me back to Jerusalem, back to my startup roots. Um, had to hit hard reset on my career by about 2009, and what was going on near me was the continuous kind of startup activity, but this time with a renewed spirit. And after a bunch of years where there had not been much activity in Jerusalem. It was starting to pick up again, and by by about last year, um, I I fully understood what was happening uh, in town in Jerusalem. I was involved with three startup companies, uh, all of which had products, all of which had very interesting markets, and all of whom had almost no interest from funders. There were, there just were no investors of any size 
uh, in the Jerusalem area, certainly, that were interested in these companies at the stage where they were. Uh, all the investors, even in the whole country, seemed to want to see traction. They kept seeing the word traction over and over again. And so I decided that you know, rather than continually arguing with them and trying to explain to them how amazing our products were and how great our mar- markets were, just go figure out how to get some traction with these products and go back to them and get, get the rest of the funding. So that's really how Jump Speed came to, uh, came to fruition. It, was a, it wasn't just a question of me looking around and trying to find a new opportunity. It was me living through an experience with a bunch of startup companies where I identified from a very personal perspective a glaring need and decided to try to put something together to, to, to serve that need. Okay, so we're speaking with Ben Wiener, uh, the founder um, and CEO of Jump Speed Ventures in Jerusalem. And uh, Ben just walked us through uh, you know, a significant portion of his professional life. And we're now getting to, if you will, the crux of the matter. What is Jump Speed? What does Jump Speed Ventures do? And what does it envision as the future? What did you see in '09 that you said, this is, this is where it's at? And then... What, what's the challenge of these companies, specifically because they're geographically loaded, located in Jerusalem as opposed to Tel Aviv? Is that is that one of the challenges? It's one of many challenges. So, uh, you know, in the old days, when I had started my first startup companies in 1999 and 2000, there were a number of VCs, uh, venture capital funds, that were resident in Jerusalem. Uh, over the year, the 2000s, most of them either shut down or left. Um, so that created definitely helped to create part of the vacuum um, in, in the Jerusalem tech scene. And again, I'm not questioning why they left. Uh, I understand why they left. Uh, the market, the bubble had crashed. The internet bubble had crashed in 2002. To the extent that there was activity, most of it was in Tel Aviv, and it made sense for them to look there. But for those that were still in Jerusalem and still active in tech, there were even fewer investors to turn to. Um, you'll, you, it'll be very hard for you to find a, a startup company that started up in the Jerusalem area that's still around uh, in, the, in the 2000s. Uh, there are a few, but very, very, very few. Uh, there just wasn't an ecosystem to support them and to help them. While, on the other hand, there were thousands and thousands of students with tremendous technological capabilities churning out of the city's universities like Hebrew U and Machon Lev, JCT, and Jerusalem College of Engineering and Bezalel. So the supply of talent was still there. But there was no outlet for them. They, they had nowhere to go other than a couple big companies that were still here from the early days, like NDS and uh, Intel and some other large companies. But the startup ecosystem was, was virtually non-existent. Um, and in addition, when you did start a startup company anywhere in the world, the investors weren't satisfied anymore with just seeing a cool idea. They wanted to see traction. So you had a double whammy if you were starting a startup company in Jerusalem you didn't have that many people to talk to, and even when you could talk to somebody, they wanted to see much more than what you could produce with your bare hands. Right. Um, so to me, that created an incredible, you know, nature abhors a vacuum, and, and uh, while there's still, I mean, obviously, by, quantitatively, there's more activity in Tel Aviv, there's also much more focus and much more attention on Tel Aviv, and I felt that I could, if I focused on Jerusalem-based opportunities, uh, number one, I'd have more of a, of a pick of whatever was here. Uh, I wasn't sure what I would find, but I knew I had three companies already that were interesting and there must be more. And number two, I wanted to continue. I was committed as an entrepreneur and not as a VC to continuing to work with the companies that I found and not just, uh, you know, trying to write them a check and you know, telling them to call me back every quarter. Um, so the, the, the ideological, the practical, and also the the intention of wanting to work closely with them drew me to plant my you know stake in the ground here in Jerusalem and and look here and and since I started doing this a couple months ago I've been completely overwhelmed by the quality and the quantity of what I've seen so it was beyond my thesis it was my thesis was right I think but I think I I, I myself did not understand the extent of the opportunity that, the, that there is here, and I'm just overwhelmed by, by what I'm seeing. So for the uh, aspiring entrepreneurs who are listening, and they are listening to Tech Talk with Ari Lightstone on the Nachum Siegel Network, 
Uh, you can hear us at jmandtheam.org or nachomsegel.com. You can see us there as well. Uh, as always, we're sponsored by our friends at Adorama Camera, more than just a camera store. Check them out online at adorama.com or visit them in person at 42 West 18th Street. And, and we've really been blessed to have Ben Wiener on from Jump, Jump Speed Ventures uh, for the last uh, 45 minutes and, and getting to the crux of, of a unique opportunity that he sees now and how he's addressing it. Can you speak to the entrepreneurs out there what the difference is in between a VC who writes a check and then you check in with once a quarter versus somebody with your uh, skill and expertise who sort of gets involved? What does that mean, getting involved? And, and how does that uh, correspond with sort of the, the do-it-myself attitude that I think you find with a lot of entrepreneurs? Well, I just want to be very careful with what I say. I mean, I definitely, in case there are VCs listening to this, <laughs> I'm definitely not looking to, to put them down. I mean, there are certain VCs individually who do a tremendous job and, and spend a, a lot of their time with their companies. So I'm definitely overgeneralizing sure. and overcategorizing. There are certainly you know, top-line VCs who spend a lot of time with their companies. But even that time is not necessarily formalized. So a lot of VCs or investors will say, we are very hands-on with our companies, but it's hard for them to point to a specific structure to that hands-on activity. What I wanted to do was to formalize it. So we've heard, or maybe your listeners have heard of accelerators. Uh, these things are very prolific. They're all over the place. Um, an accelerator program is a formalized, sort of structured approach to starting, usually to starting a startup. So an entrepreneur will apply to a local accelerator. They'll put them through a four-month sort of, uh, I guess, a boot camp, uh, introduce them to all sorts of mentors and advisors. And then after those three or four months, they're meant to graduate from the accelerator into the world like a tadpole becoming, you know, something bigger and then swimming on their own and growing their company. I wanted to build, and I set out to build an acceleration program, a formalized, structured, once, twice a week, ongoing program for my companies where they would come in and they will come into my office in Jerusalem. The founders of the companies will come into my office in Jerusalem after I make an investment. And we will work together as a group once or twice a week around a table, uh, just us, just the founders, um, once a week, probably just a work group where we're talking to each other, reporting to each other on our, on our companies. Um, I'll give them, you know, a lot of input and advice, obviously, but it'll be, you know, a table where we have, where everyone has a say and everyone has something, something to say to each other. And then the other meeting a week will be very formalized presentations from Jump Speed's corporate partners and, and mentors and advisors that I've invested a lot of time lining up. Um, I'll be bringing people from those companies in on a formal basis to make formal presentations to the founders of my portfolio companies to hear their pitches, again, formal pitches to these people and have, you know, Q&A and, and follow-up afterwards. So I'm running more my hands-on services, which a lot of investors claim to, to do and claim to have, I've formalized that into an ongoing program, um, which my founder, founders of my portfolio companies have to buy into. They have to agree to come to those events and those meetups regularly. Like I said, once, twice a week for, for months and months and months. Um, and that exposure to those ideas and to those conversations and to those people that I'll be bringing in uh, is, is almost guaranteed to move them forward in a way that they wouldn't have been able to move themselves. There's no guarantee that they will ultimately succeed, but they'll have access on a regular weekly basis to much more than they would have had had they just been operating on their own. So does, um, does, my, this, does this mean that you've created the eco, or you're creating the ecosystem where there has not been one, where there's a void? That, that's essentially what you're doing. You're creating that startup feeling with the resources and the uh, interactivity that, that might exist in Tel Aviv but doesn't exist in Jerusalem. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not even aware of a, of a micro fund in the Tel Aviv area that has that kind of um, acceleration program after investment. So okay. I think my, my hybrid of micro fund plus acceleration is unique, um, not just in Jerusalem. I mean, it's definitely the only one of its kind in, in Jerusalem, but I think even in the country, there aren't too many that I've found or heard of that do that. Most accelerators, even if they give you a little bit of money, as soon as the acceleration program is over, they're on to recruiting the next class of uh, acceleration um, participants. I'm staying with my companies for over a year and putting them through this program on an ongoing basis. But um, the, um, 
the distinction is really uh, a more – I was going to answer your question about the ecosystem. I'm not the only one creating an ecosystem in Jerusalem, and there have been a couple of really good articles written, uh, one of them in the Jerusalem Post last week and one in Venture Beat a couple of weeks ago, which describe the new ecosystem in Jerusalem. And I certainly cannot take credit for for building that whole ecosystem. I am – one of the players in that ecosystem. I'm one of the people helping to build out that ecosystem. Uh, the ecosystem includes the city's only full-time full accelerator, which is uh, SIFTAH. Uh, it includes the Jerusalem Municipality, the Jerusalem Development Authority, the only real large VC fund in the city left, which is Jerusalem Venture Partners. Um, some of the other branded things that we're doing, like the, the Made in Jerusalem brand, which is almost a nonprofit entity that's supporting uh, startups in the city. I encourage anyone listening to check out that site, Made in Jerusalem. Uh, there's a map of all the startups in Jerusalem on there uh, and the investors. So we're doing a lot of that stuff around an ecosystem that, again, encompasses much more than just what JumpSpeed is doing with our few portfolio companies. Those activities are going to benefit and, and are already benefiting all of the startups in the Jerusalem area. And that's something that I've never seen. I mean, when, when we had startup companies 14, 15 years ago, we were all on our own. We didn't have a brand. We didn't have meetups. We didn't have gatherings. We didn't have people offering us help and support and services the way that uh, myself and some of the friends of mine in this city uh, are doing now for startups, whether we're directly involved with them financially or, or not. We're all rolling up our sleeves and building something really, really special in the town to support all of the startups that are trying to to get ahead in the city. And, and that's the key for, for the entrepreneurs and, and everybody else listening out there. Your investments will be in companies that are based in Jerusalem itself? Um, based in and around Jerusalem. I, I, I am taking applications from companies, quote-unquote, as far away as Tel Aviv. But uh, practically, I, I don't – I just, first of all, I've seen so much – quality here in Jerusalem, and I'm ideologically committed to helping those companies first. You know, or whatever you want to say, I think that um, <coughs> there's just enough opportunity to keep me busy here. If something interesting comes in from Tel Aviv, I'm looking at it. And if those founders are willing to come up the hill to Jerusalem twice a week to, to meet with us, and they can, they can commit to that, then I would definitely consider it. I have a feeling, though, that my first few investments will be in Jerusalem-based Startups. There are enough that I've seen already that are interesting that I think uh, I'll be able to keep myself busy with that and, and geographic for, area. And for everybody listening out there, I've had an opportunity to peruse uh, Ben's website of Jump Speed Ventures. You can see it at www.jumpspeed.co, not com. co, and it's a it's a clean, articulate, uh, very effective website. Tells you who they are, what they do. Uh, how you can get in touch with them and, and how, in theory, if, if you or, or you know somebody who has a company that would potentially make sense, that would be there. And if, if somebody wanted to invest potentially in Jump Speed, I, I assume you could find a way to contact Ben on uh, that site as well. I don't, I don't know if that's something that you're actively looking for. Um, but uh, it's, uh, it, it, it's the, I mean, this to me is, is very exciting with the, you know, sort of the big news of, of 2013 was, you know, ways in sort of the bidding over it. And I'm sure there was a lot more uh, relevant high tech news, but that certainly made the front page over here. And, and the decision to stay uh, in Israel, did that give a renewed level of excitement to the startup world in Israel that uh, that even if we're talking about a billion or more, that the key is that we have the ability to stay here in Israel? Uh, that toss in America, I think, was very exciting. How, what, what was the feeling on the ground there in, in Israel and Jerusalem specifically? Yeah, I love talking about ways because people talk about ways a lot. It's a very notable, I mean, notable deal, maybe the deal of the year in Israel. But have you ever heard of a company called Mobileye? No. Okay, Mobileye is based right here in Jerusalem. They're in a very similar space to Ways. Uh, they're in the vehicle navigation uh, technology space. They raised last year very, very quietly, four hundred million dollars at a valuation of the company higher than what Waze was acquired for last year. And that's a Jerusalem-based company. So Waze clearly is a marquee deal and a very consumer-oriented product. We all use it. We all know it. But, you know, did you know that Jerusalem had an exit, or, or a, not an exit, but a, at least a financing 
last year in exactly the same space that was actually higher in valuation than Waze itself. So it's, it's things like that that we're trying to get out into the public, you know, mentality, both in the country and in the world, that, you know, Jerusalem is not just about the Kotel and about the Knesset and about a bunch of, uh, you know, people running around that you can't necessarily relate to, either because they're East Jerusalem Arabs or because they're Haredi people living in, you know, the neighborhoods that they live. A lot going on here on the technology side that is mainstream that everyone can relate to. And we're just not doing a good enough job of getting the word out. So, uh, again, my friends and I in the Made in Jerusalem movement and, and uh, those of us in the ecosystem here are doing everything we can to evangelize, so to speak, about what's going on in the tech sector in Jerusalem. So to get back to your first question, though, Waze definitely made a big impact, and there will be many, many more situations like that. And I'm very proud of them that they withstood the pressure and, uh, and we're able to keep the company here. Uh, I'm a happy user of their product, and uh, I think it's a great Israeli story. No, I think it's excellent, and we're happy to use Tech Talk to continue to evangelize uh, the tech movement in Jerusalem and, and any and all companies that you want to send our direction. We're, we're excited to have an opportunity to speak with them. You, you did mention something I wasn't planning on mentioning, but uh, but you mentioned it, so I figured it's it's fair game. With the, the Haredi world and sort of the tensions in between secular Haredi and, and wherever uh, sort of the modern or, or Datilu Umi falls out in between, do you think that the startup world has an opportunity to, to bridge some of those gaps? Uh, I think that the startup world has an opportunity to bridge that gap, and I, I personally have thrown my hat into that ring. So uh, I'm actually involved separately in helping to create the first Haredi-focused accelerator program, uh, I believe in the country, but certainly in Jerusalem. It's a very, very special uh, opportunity. Uh, I'm doing that in conjunction with Mahon Lev, which has really been a trailblazer in the integration of Haredi uh, talent into the workforce and into technology development. They have some incredible success stories out of Mahon Lev JCT. Uh, and I, uh, it's a little bit premature to talk about something being live, but hopefully in the next few weeks or months, we will take that program live and we'll be working hands-on with uh, Haredi, mainly Haredi entrepreneurs or want-to-be entrepreneurs, teaching them how to create their startups, how to formalize their ideas, how to turn their ideas or their talents into live startup companies that are hopefully poised for success in the international arena, just the same as any other startup company uh, that they'd be you know, working alongside. So personally, I'm very, very engaged in that space. I'm very committed to that space. And I think that there are huge untapped opportunities, huge challenges for sure, but huge willingness from the population uh, to get involved in this kind of area. Very few points of entry or very few access points for them. So we're hopefully opening up a really big access point for them with a lot of hands-on uh, assistance and guidance because it's such a such a difficult world to break into for anyone, but uh, certainly for someone from the Haredi uh, from the Haredi population. So we're specially designing this course to make it totally "quote unquote" kosher, totally halachic, totally everything, but also specially designed for enabling Haredi entrepreneurs to create startup companies and get them into uh, into the international marketplace. Uh, ben, here on the Nachum Siegel Network and spe- specifically on Tech Talk, we don't normally have guests for an hour. I could have you on for three more hours, and and uh, and certainly I would not be bored. I'm sure our audience wouldn't either. Not sure how long you want to talk to me for. But, uh, you know, we're, we've been sponsored this hour by Adorama.com. See them online. Uh, visit them in person, 42 West 18th Street. You've been listening to Tech Talk. And, and Ben, it... it Please, for the audience out there, check out Made in Jerusalem. See Jump Speed Ventures, which is jumpspeed.co. It really sounds like you're at the nexus of things that matter tremendously to us. Uh, Jerusalem, first and foremost, uh, emerging economies, emerging entrepreneurs, uh, creating a, a uh, society that will be not only self-sufficient but really as leaders, and then tackling the, the Haredi secular divide, I think, is just so critical. I've learned a tremendous amount. Maybe we'll have you on uh, in, a, in a couple months and sort of hear how that's going because that really sounds absolutely fascinating. Wanted to thank you for having you on. Wish you a good afternoon, a good evening, and, and thank everybody for listening to uh, Tech Talk here with Ari Lightstone on the Nachum Siegel Network. Until next time, have a good week.